Welcome, fellow true crime enthusiasts, to today's case file, Pillow Face, the story of serial killer Billy Shamirmir. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. say that they lost loved ones to an alleged serial killer. Well, now that the suspect has been found guilty of killing one of the 18 women he's accused of suffocating, these people hope that they too will see justice. Here's Les Trent. Prosecutors say 49-year-old Billy Tremere targeted our most vulnerable, the elderly, often posing as a maintenance worker to sneak into their senior living facilities around Dallas. He's charged with killing 18 senior citizens and stealing their jewelry. They're all believed to have been smothered with a pillow. The jury heard testimony from the only woman believed to have survived Tremere Mir's alleged murder spree. It took the jury just 40 minutes to find Tremere Mir guilty of suffocating 81-year-old Lou Harris. You can see her lipstick stain still on the pillow. It's that smeared on there. It ain't put on there. According to prosecutors, the killer first laid eyes on Harris at a Walmart. This surveillance video shows them in the store. Shamir Mir followed the victim home and smothered her to death. Family members gathered after the verdict was read, including former Dallas Cowboy and Football Hall of Famer Cliff Harris, whose mother-in-law is suspected to have been killed by Shamir Mir. I know our whole group is so happy and uh, you know, but justice was done. Shamir Mir is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Picture this, the shocking revelation that your cherished mother or grandmother, whom you presumed had peacefully passed away from natural causes, was, in reality, a victim of a remorseless serial killer. And it gets even more harrowing. There weren't just one or two victims, there were at least 21 others between 2016 and 2018 alone. The sinister figure known as Pillowface was responsible for 22 deaths, making him the most prolific serial killer in the history of Texas. But hold on, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Our story delves deeper as investigators from multiple police departments pour over hundreds of cases, all potentially linked to Pillowface himself. If their suspicions are confirmed, he could surpass even the infamous Luis Garavito and Pedro Lopez, each believed to have taken the lives of around 300 victims. 
with approximately 750 unattended deaths of elderly women linked to Shamir Mir. Now, let's turn back the clock to the fateful day of March 19, 2018. The fire department responded to a distress call from the friends of a 91-year-old woman named Mary Bartell in her own home. Little did they know that Mary's chilling account of that day would unravel a gruesome tale and crack open a case involving a suspected serial killer. Shamir Mir was arrested in March 2018 after Mary Bartell survived an attack by a man who forced his way into her apartment at a senior living community in Plano. I'm Mary A. Bartell. I, I knew instantly when I saw those two green rubber gloves Number one, I should not have opened the door. Number two, my life was in grave danger. He said, don't fight me, lie on the bed. So I did as he said. He just smashed a pillow down hard over my, my face and my chest. And I, I just couldn't breathe. Friends found Bartell unconscious on her bed and called 911. Bartell told investigators three rings were missing from her hands. Investigators developed Shamir Mir as a suspect based on her account and a suspicious vehicle seen prowling around nearby senior communities. The next day, Shamir Mir was tracked to his apartment. Detectives say he had in his possession an envelope with cash and jewelry. A jewelry box police say he had just thrown away led them to a Dallas home where Lou Harris was dead in her bedroom lipstick smeared on her pillow. Shamir Mir is on trial for her murder. Prosecutors say he followed Harris home from a Walmart and smothered her. After her death, investigators reopened several cases initially classified as natural causes, leading to 18 counts in Dallas and Collin counties. On March 19th, Mary Annis Bartell, who was 91 years old, was returning home from a routine shopping trip when there was a knock at her door. She'd been expecting some guests and assumed it was a visit from one of her neighbors. However, when she answered the door, she didn't recognize the uninvited guest that stared back at her. Billy Shamir Mir was dressed as a maintenance worker. The rubber green gloves he wore sent alarm bells ringing in Mary's mind, but she resisted the urge to react and she reluctantly allowed Shamir Mir to enter her home. What Mary didn't know was that Shamir Mir had a long running history of attacking defenseless elderly women and for some reason he had set his sights on her. 
With a chilling command, he ordered Mary to lie on her own bed, and with a ruthless efficiency, he seized the pillow from beneath her head. Shamirmir's M.O. was to suffocate his elderly victims, and he quickly pressed the pillow firmly across her face and applied pressure. He had done the same thing so often that he had developed a rhythm, and as Mary lost consciousness and stopped struggling, he turned his attention to his real motive and began rummaging through Mary's personal belongings looking for money and jewelry. What Shamirmir had not counted on was Mary's internal defibrillator, an internal implanted device that sends a shock to the heart when it senses the heart has stopped beating, and as Shamirmir made his escape, the defibrillator gave Mary a jolt of life miraculously bringing her back from the brink of death. As Shamirmir made his escape, taking Mary's valuables, her friends finally arrived at her apartment, finding her unconscious but alive, and immediately called 911. As Mary came to and began to tell the story of the attack, many thought it was just too wild to be believable and wondered if Mary was confused. But Mary's son knew his mother and helped her communicate the story to the police. When Mary told her story to the police, they realized there was more to this story. They recognized the pattern almost immediately, a disturbing series of incidents involving mostly elderly women who had died, but mysteriously had also had their jewelry stolen or misplaced upon their death. The authorities had initially ruled these deaths to be a result of natural causes, but now, with Mary's experience, the Plano, Texas police began investigating the assault and looking for a connection to the other deaths. There had been a number of elderly that had passed away and a number of different family members just thought some different things were odd. One family member talked about how her mother had said she thought it was strange. Like her mother had been doing like vacations and get togethers with her elderly friends that were also in the same retirement community as her. And they died out of nowhere and it was surprising to her and it really bothered her and she kept talking about it. And then her mom also died and she thought it was strange because they were all in good health. Like, yeah, they were old, but when you raise those suspicions and you say, oh, I think something's missing, a wedding ring's missing or some of their jewelry's missing, people just think they're old, you know, like they were between like mid to late seventies and nineties, mid nineties. Right. So nobody was thinking, you know, somebody went in there and did anything to them. Plus the method of killing with the smothering doesn't leave a lot of physical evidence to show something happened. It doesn't. And typically that's not something that they even really look for unless it's super obvious. Like if they find some crazy looking debris or something in the lung, if they even do an autopsy, cause they don't do an autopsy on everybody then they just don't even look for it. So unless the police come and say, hey, there's suspicion here, we would like for you to look for this. It's just generally not something that they would even know. Even a trained person would even see. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. I think Shamir Mir really did a good job of picking his victims to be people who no one would suspect had died unnaturally. Right. It would have been totally different if he was targeting 31-year-olds Like everybody would be like, well, how did this guy just fall dead? Like he's so young. But when you're targeting people that are 75 and and greater, you kind of expect them to eventually die. And so like it doesn't come off as a surprise. Although a lot of the people that died, they were doing well, like they weren't having any issues. And so a lot of them were living in assisted living, but they were living on their own pretty much. Like they weren't under convalescent care or anything like that. 
They no, weren't hospitalized. No, none of them had any type of like, you know, assistant that worked with them or anything like that. You know, they had people that would come in and maybe um, give them meds at some of the different places, but none of them needed any type of like real care, so to speak. I think one thing that kind of stands out to me is when Mary Bartell opens the door and she sees some guy standing there with gloves on, something triggered in her that made her think it was a crazy situation. Like it wasn't normal. The rubber gloves. <laughs> yeah. The rubber gloves. Yeah, dishwashing gloves on, man. <laughs> yeah. But she fought that feeling and she allowed the person to enter her home anyways, thinking, well, maybe this is the maintenance guy. What she really should have done was she should have probably closed the door and not let him in. There's a video of her giving a testimony where she's talking about what occurred. And she said that when she opened the door, she said she didn't even think to look to see who was, you know, like who was outside the door. But when she opened the door and she saw the green gloves, she immediately knew something was wrong. But at that point, he was already telling her what to do. And she felt like she couldn't react. Right. That's a scary situation yeah. for any person, especially for an older person. March 20th, 2018, marked the day when Billy Shamir Mayer's calculated facade began to unravel. The Plano police were piecing together a deadly puzzle of mysterious deaths that had been plaguing assisted living homes in the Dallas area. Billy Shamir Mayer was quickly elevated to a person of interest in these deaths, as the police searched for a connection to Shamir Mayer, linking him to the other deaths and missing jewelry. What Shamir Mir didn't know at the time was that Mary Bartell had survived his brutal attack and was prepared to identify him. As detectives surveilled Shamir Mir, posted up just outside his apartment complex, they witnessed Shamir Mir toss a jewelry box into a dumpster. Ordinarily, this would not have been significant, but it was pivotal for the detectives. They made the decision to move in for an arrest. When the cuffs closed around Shamir Mir's wrists, the detectives recovered the jewelry box, quickly identifying it as the jewelry box belonging to Luthi Harris, an 81-year-old woman and Shamir Mir's latest victim. After further investigation, Luthi's keys and fragments of her jewelry were discovered in Shamir Mir's car, just an hour after Shamir Mir's arrest. Luthi Harris was found lifeless in her home. A pillow was found lying nearby with traces of her lipstick smeared on the pillowcase. Hours after 81-year-old Lou Harris was found dead in her Dallas home, police arrested Shamir Mir. In his interview, he cooperates but expresses he's unsure why he's there. Wow. Police bringing Billy Shamir Mir in for questioning after they say they witnessed him dispose of a jewelry box belonging to 81-year-old Lou Harris outside his apartment, keeping the jewelry and money. It led them to Harris's Dallas home, where she was found dead. You don't remember going to a house in Dallas, huh? in North Dallas. Shamir huh? Mir tells detectives he bought the jewelry box from someone 20 minutes before his arrest and decided he didn't want it. And he had purchased the $2 bills from someone in Fort Worth. The detective wasn't buying it. Walmart surveillance video shows Harris and Shamir Mir crossed paths at the same store the day she was found dead. It appears there was no interaction, but they did leave within less than a minute of each other, heading in the same direction. This would prove to be the beginning of the search as detectives tore through Shamir Mir's home, searching for additional evidence. 
They would recover a trove of women's jewelry, cell phones, and medical scrubs, evidence that would eventually connect him to over 22 additional crime scenes. His victims, mostly women, ranging in ages from 76 to 94 years old. Further forensics would tie his cell phone pings to grocery stores, the last known locations of most of his victims. Witnesses' descriptions of his vehicle license plate number put him in and around the victims' homes and crime scenes. The question quickly became, who is Billy Shamirmir and how prolific of a killer was he? I think that's pretty damning evidence, the jewelry box. And I know that there wasn't a lot of physical evidence, but that's pretty damning to find jewelry of a person who's dead. Right. And to find a jewelry box that belonged to someone who was just recently killed. That's pretty damning evidence. The problem is, is that for those individuals who had died is that generally a autopsy isn't conducted unless a family member requests it, unless there's suspicion of murder, something of that nature. So it's not automatic. And so all of these elderly people who had died, it was ruled natural causes. They're old. They died of natural causes. There was nothing to make them believe that anything strange happened. So there was a couple cases where some of the family members thought things were odd. Like there was one case where a walker was tipped over and there was some blood. And later they ended up finding out that there was a bloody thumbprint on the glasses of this elderly woman and it belonged to Billy Shamirmir. And at the time her son thought, you know, yeah, she's older and yeah, maybe she died of natural causes, but that doesn't explain these blood droplets. Like that just seems strange. And he couldn't get over the blood on the glasses. And it wasn't until after all of this came out where they went back and they looked into it and found the, the print on her glasses and all of that that tied back to him. So part of Shamir's deal was that he was motivated by stealing, by money. It was monetary gain is why he was killing people. It was to take their valuables, to take whatever he could that was valuable from them and to use that to live his life. And I think as we get to know more about him, I think maybe that'll be, we'll understand that a little bit more, but partially it almost even seems like you would think he has enough money. Why would he be doing this to get more money or more things? Was it more of a thrill for him? You know? Billy Kip Courier Shamir Mir was born on December 8th, 1972. He was a Sagittarius. Being of Nigerian descent, Shamir Mir was born in the Kenyan village of Kabanyani. His life journey would take Shamir Mir from the quiet plains of Africa where he cared for his elderly father on their farm to the bustling streets of the United States and eventually he settled in the metropolis of Dallas, Texas. In 1998, at the urging of his sister who felt he needed a fresh start, he became a permanent U.S. resident with a Kenyan citizenship and began selling cars before he decided to switch careers and opted for a career in healthcare as a nurse and a senior caregiver. After earning a bachelor's degree in nursing, he chose to work with his family who operated several senior living homes in the Dallas area. At first glance, he appeared unremarkable, but Shamir Mir had a hidden persona that he kept hidden from the rest of the world. Shamir Mir was a functioning alcoholic. He hid the secret by being a loner and keeping mostly to himself. 
However, his life took a darker turn in 2006 when his marriage to Monique Shamir Mir ended in divorce, leaving him without any children. Over the years, brushes with the law became increasingly frequent, from a DUI conviction in Addison and Dallas in 2010 and 2011 to a guilty plea for aggravated assault against a former girlfriend in 2012. And then in 2016, Shamir Mir found himself in trouble again, this time for trespassing at the Edgemir Retirement Community, a facility that would later be linked to a series of deaths he was already suspected of. Behind a seemingly ordinary exterior, Shamir Mir was a big spender, spending more money than he made. He was also a cunning manipulator and easily got those around him to do his bidding with little effort. As the police dug deeper into Shamir Mir, they were shocked by their discoveries. He grew up in Africa with his dad. My first question is, who's the first person he killed? Did he kill his dad? Well, not that I know of, but his dad was a um, chief too in the village and had been a chief in the village for a while, which is an important position there. So he was an important person. And with him being there, taking care of his dad, I guess at some point he just was kind of drinking and just kind of getting in trouble, not up to any good. And so his sister was like, hey, why don't you come to the U.S. and um, do something with your life? And so that started, you know, his journey. With him getting into the U.S., I see that, you know, he decides to become a nurse, more than likely because his family was in the nursing business and they had several nursing homes. And so he gets into nursing. He goes through when he gets a degree in nursing and then he works for his family's nursing home. The question is, how many of those patients did he kill? Well, supposedly they've had no records of anything suspicious occurring there. And who knows? Maybe he cared enough about his family not to, you know, do anything near there that would impact their way of making money. It really makes me curious to know when he began this whole, you know, murder for profit type deal. Because depending on when he started would give us more of an indicator of the amount of bodies that he left behind. Right. Because if he started in 2016, when he was caught at the Edgemere retirement community, he got in trouble for trespassing and they would eventually link a death there to him. That was in 2016. And I really think that if it weren't for that, they probably wouldn't have even gone that far back. So something tells me that there could be many more cases prior to 2016, but they're just not going to have evidence to go back that far. And they probably went as far as they could when it came to his cell phone pings and those kind of things where they were really able to place him in the vicinity of where these suspicious deaths occurred or where these elderly people were being robbed from because there was a lot of cases that had been reported where families were like, Hey, like her wedding rings missing or all her jewelry's missing. And it just didn't make sense. Right. Right. Do we know when he graduated from, from college? No, I don't know what year he graduated. Cause something tells me that it was very close to the time that he got into the nursing field. I don't know that it would have been that much longer And for anybody that works around elderly people, you know that for a lot of them, their family doesn't come around very often um, when they're living in these kinds of places. Um, Generally, they have older jewelry that, you know, they've had for years that's probably worth a lot of money. 
they're a vulnerable population. So right. he could have seen them as, well, you don't need this or, you know, you have a lot of money or nobody's going to miss this and found that as an opportunity. You know, he grew up in a village and was on a farm. So to him, this might be a way to a better life. Right. Yeah, it's really in a horrible way. Yeah. What do we know about his spending habits? It says he's a big spender. I heard he was also a gambler. Yeah, there had been some stuff that had, that had surfaced with a friend of his. And I think his friend was really taken back when he was arrested, like just in disbelief that this guy could be this way, but that he would spend kind of beyond his means that he did like to gamble. Um, he was a little bit showsy. He got a friend to, to help him get a vehicle at one point. And I believe the vehicle was maybe even still even in his friend's name, not even in his name, which could have been part of his plan for maintaining some kind of veil of secrecy to some degree. And then his drinking, he did like to drink. And yeah. Billy Shamir who we've dubbed the pillow face killer has a very unique MO. His soft kill tactics of smothering his unsuspecting victims with a pillow left very little evidence of foul play and targeting the elderly meant no suspicion or foul play was typically suspected. The missing jewelry and valuables was always an odd side note as families were typically more focused on the loss of their loved ones and not the status of any family jewels. Disguised as a maintenance or medical worker, Shamir Mir easily breached the sanctity of his victims' homes and apartments, snuffing out their lives and then pilfering their valuables. Detectives followed Shamir Mir's trail from one senior living community to another throughout Dallas, Texas. At the upscale Edgemere Senior Living, where Shamir Mir had once been arrested for trespassing in 2016, at least three deaths at the location bore his grisly signature. But it was tradition Prestonwood that was to be his epicenter of his malevolence. A staggering nine deaths at this location was linked to Shamir Mir within just three months. When questioned, a medical examiner would later testify that the subtle signs of smothering are often extremely elusive, unless you're really looking for it, and it can easily be overlooked. Shamirmir refused to confess to the crimes he was accused of. Even with so much evidence stacked against him, he clung to his innocence until the very end, pretending to be a victim of mistaken identity or false accusations. The list of confirmed victims at Tradition Senior Living, the confirmed death toll stood at eight. They include Joyce Abramowitz, Juanita Purdy, Leah Corkin, Margaret White, Solomon Spring, Norma French, Glenna Day, and Doris Gleason. At Preston Place in Plano, the seven murders there included the attempted murder of Mary Bartell. And within the walls of Edgemere Senior Living, one victim, Phyllis Payne, was ID'd. It is unknown how many more victims Shamir Mir left in his wake of terror. Some estimate that there could be hundreds of victims, depending on when Shamir Mir began his murderous plot and how frequently he executed his M.O. of following unsuspecting elderly home from their shopping trips to be smothered to death and robbed. My name is Lindsay Williams Rome. I will not waste my breath on you except to say I am so proud of my brave sister Holland who took the stand to testify against you. Our mother, Martha Williams, was a fighter and she fought you. She's raised two fighters. We have fought you 
and we will continue to fight you until you are dead in your cold, dark prison cell alone. My mother probably already told you, but it bears repeating. Go to hell. What's your thoughts on him not confessing? I don't think that's odd for a couple of reasons. One is the attorney that he had had actually made a comment whenever everything first came out that there was pretty much no evidence against him. And that was true. There wasn't a whole lot of evidence, like solid evidence that could really link him. Yes, they pinged his phone in a certain area, but you know that a ping goes for a pretty decent distance. And so because there was really no physical evidence, it was really hard to connect him. And so there was physical evidence. There was jewelry. There was the jewelry box. There was the, the, the smudge of the fingerprint on the glasses from one of his victims. There was eyewitness, Mary Bartell. Like there was a lot of evidence. Not, now, maybe not to all 22 victims, but yeah, not to, to all 22 victims. Yeah. So, and so because of that, I think any attorney would have told him, Hey, they don't have a lot. You know, what they do have is, is like not the best evidence for what they do and was trying to get him to get the best deal possible. And then I think just like any serial killer, they just don't give you everything and they're not going to give you everything. And in his situation, I'm pretty sure that his family, his country, those guys would all disown him. And so I think it's it was also there's a selfish element there as well in not wanting to lose whatever little semblance of family or friends or connection he still had. Yeah, I'm sure that was a big part of it. My name is Scott McPhee and I represent the family and friends of Carolyn McPhee. In 2016 and 2017, you came into our parents' home disguised as a caregiver who would help our mother care for our ailing father. But then you, the real Billy Shamir, the one who only cares about himself, came back eight months after our father passed and took advantage of the trust you had been given by our mother and killed her in the home that she had shared with her father, her love and joy had reigned for so many years. You ate in that house with us, you spent time with our family, you saw what we were and who we were, and it all meant nothing more to you than a few thousand dollars worth of jewelry. Then you took the life of a woman who had years of joyful life left. What you will never understand is those trinkets meant nothing to us. Instead, it is the theft of time that is your crime, the time she did not get to see her oldest grandson get married, the time she did not get to greet her first grandson, the time she won't see her grandson get his diploma, the time she won't spend with her granddaughter in the kitchen or doing puzzles, the time she's not with friends laughing, the time we will not get to spend with her. All the times she will miss because of your selfishness. You stole that valuable time from all of us. As Carolyn McPhee's family, we are people with faith in God. So while you face the justice that man provides, we know the true justice is God and he knows the real Billy All you have left is time, Billy. I suggest you use it wisely. As for Carolyn McPhee's family, you have taken enough of our time and we will waste no more of it on you because you have no power over us. 
Billy Shamir's case was brought forward during the height of COVID-19 disruptions. Coupled with the complexities of handling multiple cases against the accused, his reign of terror crossed borders and legal boundaries. In the absence of autopsies and the ability to provide concrete physical evidence, the cases against Shamir Mir relied heavily on phone pings that placed him in the vicinity of deaths initially ruled as natural causes. These proved to be far from open and shut cases, and Shamir Mir held steadfast to his innocence, insisting that everybody had it wrong. Eventually, the small amount of physical evidence and the mountain of circumstantial evidence landed a life without parole conviction. That could have been enough, but the state concerned that Shamir Mir might try to get out on appeals, decided to pursue a second case against him, and secured a second life without parole conviction for good measure. And with that, Shamir Mir was on his way to serving out his sentence, which guaranteed he would die behind bars. But Shamir Mir's fate took a chilling turn. Unable to maintain that same low-key persona behind bars, Shamir Mir found himself in a precarious predicament when he decided to make an inappropriate comment about the children of his cellmate, a Harris County murderer. His situation was he was in a cell with a person who was convicted of murder, so anything can happen. And my understanding is, is that he got into an argument of some sort, said something inappropriate to his cellmate, and the cellmate killed him, beat him to death. Beat him to death? Wasn't stabbed or...? Well, maybe stabbed with a pen, but not a knife. But even though they're on lockdown, apparently he somehow opened the door and dragged him into the hallway and there were other prisoners who saw it and nobody intervened or nobody called for help. And basically he was there for about 15 or 20 minutes before anybody of authority could figure out that what had happened and he was there and they tried to revive him and he died. But the reality of it is, is Billy Shamir Mir could have killed more people than that. We really don't know. And there becomes a point where where do you start and stop looking? And what would it do to the families to learn that if there are more? Um, but we don't really know um, when he started all of this. We just have what we have. And it's likely that he killed more people. We don't, we don't know. But he's certainly one of the more prolific serial killers in the state of Texas, that's for certain, that we know of. Yeah, if not maybe in the, in the, in the country, because, I mean, DPD at one point told me they thought maybe he was good for like 100 murders. They just couldn't. I don't know how They just it, couldn't put those on Right. Him. I mean, you would have to go back and start really exhuming people on undetermined deaths where it was a possibility that he was there. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And that's why I say I don't know that anything would be served by doing that because you, you can only try him so many times. And um, to be quite honest with you, it doesn't surprise me that he was killed in prison. I always thought that that was a possibility with somebody uh, with his background. Now it seems to be, as I understand it, that he said something inappropriate to his uh, roommate, and that's what triggered the attack. But you don't know what that what he said. S something of a sexual nature and inappropriate is my understanding, and it was directed towards the inmate's children or child. So, and that's what triggered all of this. Wow. I right. mean, I figured he might get killed because people hated him for killing a bunch of defenseless old ladies. Well, you never know what'll motivate somebody. I mean, that may have had a part in it. I don't know. Uh, but yes, I, I've always recognized that he's probably, in general population, is probably, just by the nature of his offenses, you know, there are others down there that will take offense to it. And his situation was he was in a cell with a person who was convicted of murder. So 
anything can happen. In a shocking and violent twist, Shamir Mir's cellmate physically assaulted Shamir Mir, dragging him out of his cell, and using a makeshift weapon, ended the life of Billy Shamir Mir in an unforeseen turn of events. Shamir Mir was 50 years old and had only spent five years of his double life sentence behind bars. Some victims were unsatisfied with what they perceived to be Shamir Mir's easy way out, while others found his death chillingly fulfilling, with justice somehow being doled out through fate or karma. What's interesting for Billy Shamir Mir is that when he first went to trial, the first trial ended in a hung jury. Okay. And so they had to go back to trial and it was 11 to one. It'd be nice if there wasn't a hung jury with that, but still they had to go back. So he went back to court. And I think this probably is part of the reason that they chose not to pursue the death penalty. The death penalty a lot of times is reserved for very heinous crimes for multiple, multiple crimes. And the fact that they couldn't prove without reasonable doubt that he committed so many, I think they felt like their best case scenario was to try to do life without parole. And so the DA's office was very upfront with the families because there's a lot of families involved and a lot of families want to see justice for their family members. So they told him, you know, Hey, we're not going to go for the death penalty. And who knows, you know, like now, What was their reasoning? You know, is it because of the solidarity of the case? And were they worried about him later being able to put forth different appeals and maybe winning an appeal? And maybe they thought, you know what, our best bet, honestly, is to do life without parole. And then he won't get out on parole. You know, I know that a lot of the families were upset as well when they decided not to go forward because he was indicted for, I want to say it was at least 11 of the cases. There was only two that he was actually convicted of and not at the same time. Those were separate instances. In both of those cases, they had good physical evidence, especially the last one. His last murder was committed within an hour of when he was arrested. So they were definitely able to get him on that one. And that was one of the ones that he was convicted and sentenced for. But a lot of the families were disappointed that they didn't get to see justice for their family members, that he wasn't technically convicted and sentenced for their murders. But I think the reality of when we go through the court system is that we spend a lot of money and we utilize a lot of time and resources when we're prosecuting cases. And when you've already gotten, like you're not going to get any better than that. And so to add more names at that point in time, you know he did it. We know he did it. To add more names at that point in time doesn't do anything but burn money and time and resources. Yeah, I mean, and you can't serve more than one life sentence. So what would be the point of of pursuing 22 different cases and giving him 22 different series of life in prison? He can only execute one life in prison term. It's a little bit redundant. Right. And the family did get to go in and do their victim impact statements and all of that. So, yeah. So, so they have to view that as, as getting justice. And sometimes the universe has a way of setting things right. And yeah, he got a life sentence, but he also got a death sentence too. He got both. And there's actually, um, one of the family members, a daughter of, of one of the women that he killed said that she feels like 
there was a sense of justice in what happened. And she said, I know that he didn't die an easy death. This was no, basically like this was no quiet, nice, lethal injection. Like he suffered. And I know that my mom suffered. So I feel like there's a sense of justice there. Yeah. Yeah, there probably is a sense of justice for a lot of people. There's a lot of people that are against the death penalty. But sometimes life has a way of just kind of setting the score right. And things happen for a reason. If he would have gotten a death sentence, he would have been protected. He would have been in a cell all by himself. He wouldn't have been with another cellmate. He wouldn't have been in general population, but he wasn't. And, you know, I watched a news interview with Mary Bartell's son talking about, because, of course, Mary Bartell passed away during the trial process. And he was saying how his mom was very religious very well known in the community and in the church. And he said that she had forgiven Billy Shamir Mir. And even though obviously she wanted to see justice served, he said that every time she saw another victim or she saw something on TV about the case, he said she would get sick and it would take her like a week to recover. And he said it was really hard on her and he got very emotional. And I think he really feels like her passing had a lot to do with the stress of everything to do with Billy Shamir So in the end, he eventually killed her anyway. Right. I think sad. that's that's how her, her son felt. It's really sad. Yeah, uninterrupted, she might have lived to be 100 years old. She was tough. She was tough. She got smothered and just came back to life and then told on him, that's tough, man. That's gangster. And you know, when, when her son's talking about, because it's in the same interview, her son's talking about how... Um, Initially, they were thinking she'd kind of like made this up, like she's old and maybe she hit her head and, you know, yeah. something like she's, you know, a guy with green rubber gloves. <laughs> so her son said that he knew that that story couldn't have been made up and he knew that his mom, there, there wasn't anything wrong with her mentally. So he said that once he spoke with her, um, he called the police. And once she told the police her story, the police were like, this aligns with some things that have been reported to us. And there's definitely something more here. And it was the very next day where he killed his last victim. And it was the very next day that he was arrested. That happened on the 19th. Yeah. On the 18th, he had killed somebody on the 9th of March. He'd killed somebody on the 4th of March. He'd killed somebody. Wow. Actually, all of those were in her same complex. Wow. So, she was his next victim and he was going to obviously keep going. He was going to kill, he was going to so, kill the whole neighborhood. And the very next day with Luthi Harris, you know, when they caught him and it's unfortunate that they didn't catch him before that occurred. Right. But that was actually not at a retirement home. That was at the woman's home. Wow. And he had followed her home from a grocery store. It wasn't just those homes. So, th so he could have killed more women at their homes, not even in assisted living. Yeah, and That's if you scary. it is, and if you tally up how many people he killed, so there's there's one stint at one of the places where he killed nine people in, in about a three four month time frame, and so if you think of that, and then you times that, you know, to figure out how many people he could have killed in a year, and then every year he could have killed a lot of people, and there was actually, um, they said somewhere around seven hundred and fifty cases that they were looking at that met the criteria or some of the criteria that would fit with Billy Shamirmir's MO. And the reality is, is that they're not going to go back and look at all these cases. Yeah. I know that we would like for them to, and I know that people would want to know 
was he a part of this? But again, the truth is that they're going to waste a lot of manpower to try to pin him to something. And now he's not even alive. So you can't do anything about it, you know? So it's still unsettling and it's, it leaves a, a certain sense of unfulfillment in not knowing everything and not knowing the length of his murderous, you know, rampage. Like we don't have no idea. We can't put a number on it. And even though it's not going to make anybody feel any better for their family members that are lost that, you know, maybe that he had a hand in, but it does leave some people unfulfilled and feeling like they wish they had answers, wish it would just, you know, admitted to it and then told the truth of when he started and how many people he would have killed, gave people closure. He probably doesn't remember. Of course not. Such a high number. And because they did figure out that he really wasn't connected to any of them. And the only person, every single person had been smothered of all the ones that they know of for sure that they've connected him to, except for the Mel. They said that he was found in a pool of blood. And something tells me that there was a struggle with him. And he probably decided at that point in time that he was never again going to try to kill a male. So all of his victims were female, except for that one of the ones that have been confirmed pretty much. Gotcha. Billy Shamirmir, the pillow face killer reminds us that we are most at risk when we are at our most fragile state, when we are sick, when we are physically weak and hospitalized, when we are convalescing and as we age and become old, most, if not all of Shamirmir's victims were elderly. None were capable of fighting back physically, but Mary Bartell found the mental strength, even at 91, to bring an end to Shamirmir's reign of terror. Many who have lost their loved ones unexpectedly over the years, who can place Shamirmir near their loved ones, are left wondering if their loved ones were taken by the, fil- by the pillow face killer. Wondering if Shamirmir could have had a hand in their loved one's untimely demise, something we unfortunately will never know. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.